Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. This is episode 84. I'm Dan Prosser, joined once again by Andrew Frankel, who's been thinking about his automotive heroes. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, we are, we've never, we've 84 podcasts and we've never really done this. And given that these are the people who got us interested in cars and ultimately, I guess, are responsible for what we do now i just thought it would be just quite interesting you know um to do a bit of to and fro and just see who they were and you know i don't i don't know about yours but um some i've never met others i'm related to so it's you know it's it's kind of like they they, they come at me from everywhere um so i just thought it might be a uh, a fun topic of conversation i guess we'll find out won't we we will and maybe a little insight into you and i as well um so i'm i'm curious are yours mostly from childhood or are some of your heroes from um later in life no they're almost well they're either from childhood or early adulthood um they're the people who sort of you know in in my formative years they're the people who kind of um just really sort of got me going and yeah i mean much more so than than today i mean there are there are so many people that i i really admire today um but not not many who i would really call although some some of mine are still alive um so um well not many actually a couple um but yeah but it, but it is different these these are the people who inspired me i guess and i guess we always think back on who inspired you not currently who's inspiring you uh, particularly when you're as old as i am yeah for someone to be a hero i think they really have to leave an impression on you when you're young i think that's right um, and that is true of all of mine i'm a little bit nervous about this because i fear that mine are just totally predictable and inevitably yours are going to be the no, they're not. opposite my, my, of my, that mine, no. no they're not they're, no i mean you know the names on my list will either be really, really famous people or people who no one's heard of because I, I, I know them. Um, so you know, I, we'll see. We will see. But uh, no, I, I, I haven't got any sort of you know, rabbits to pull out of hats, I don't think. But you know, maybe. OK, um, so, yeah, I mean, we're going to take it in turns. You'll do one then I do. I'll do one. Um, I've yeah, you just mentioned having met them or not. I've only met one of mine, although I've sort of spoken to another one of them. 
So, yeah, not many. Um, but let's crack on then. Uh, do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, can I start with my father? Um, only because uh, he, he is where it all started. Because, you know, I, I grew up in a family where to be completely and utterly obsessed with cars was totally normal. We used to think my mother was a bit weird because she wasn't. Yeah, and she didn't really understand it. Um, and to me, being having a passion for cars, it, it wasn't like it was a kind of option. It was like, you know, waking up or eating food or, you know, or anything like that. It's just something that was part of your life. It's part of who you were. Um, and I think that with that, and that all came, that, that all came from my father and where he got it from, who knows, because there was none of it in his family, but he, he just had some insane gene, rogue gene that he picked up from somewhere. Um, the car he used to call it the disease because you know it was something that you once you got you never got rid of it um, to the extent I might have mentioned this on the podcast before that um, when he came to his career choices he literally had he, he narrowed it down to being a lawyer or an accountant um, and he decided to become an accountant because he realized he could drive between audits that was literally <laughs> it that was the reason he became an accountant uh, he didn't spend much time well he spent a bit of time practicing as an accountant but he went off into business and other things and he was just he was completely obsessed with cars. He also had this extraordinary never-say-die attitude to stuff. He just he just wouldn't let himself be defeated by, by stuff. So he used to his pride. He he, he once he made a bit of money. He um, you know years and years and years ago when these things were much more affordable than they are now. He bought himself a vintage Bentley because that's what he really wanted. And he'd go off and he'd, he'd just do insane things. Like he'd just go and drive it across America, or he'd drive it around South Africa, um, and. He would, you know, he went and did the Millimilia, the retrospective thing in it, lots of times. And one year, actually it wasn't long before he died, actually, um, they said to him, Mr. Franklin, you've done this quite a lot of times. And this year, I hope you don't mind, but we're going to let some other people have a go. So um, we're turning down your retro this year. And he just thought, sod it, I'll go anyway. So he got in this thing, drove it across Europe, turned up at Scrutineering, and they said, Mr. Franklin, it's lovely to see you, but you haven't got an entry. And he said, well, here I am. Give us an entry. And they went... All right then, and they created a space for him. They had one more car on the event that year than they would usually because they just couldn't believe that he, you know, the, and and that was. And I think if you have that in your blood, um, and I'm nothing like as determined as, as him, um, but that uh, I, I guess it is that desire, that drive, just to not just have a passion, but to indulge it. That's the thing, isn't it? It's it's not enough to just love cars. It's in, in any way you can, at whatever level you reach in terms of how good you are as a driver or how much money you have, and therefore the cars you can afford and what you can do, just get out there and do it. Um, and he taught me that. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'll be grateful him to that forever. Um, over to what you. What a brilliant place to start. Well, hang on, let me just ask. So, I mean, he, he went to work as an accountant. Yes. Um, so, presumably a, a relative, was he a sensible man, straight-laced at all? No, at all, or? no. He was... He, he was, oh, okay. he was he was he, he was a gifted communicator and he ended up teaching accountancy um he, he, he started a company which taught people how to become accountants um and and to this day it's very interesting to this day less now because you know it was, was a long time ago but they used to come there used to be a stage where i'd go anywhere um usually happened at things like the google festival of speed um and i'd be there and somebody would come walking up to me and i go oh, look somebody recognized me and they come up to me <laughs> and go are you andrew frankel and i go yes i am andrew frankel <laughs> yeah and and then they say I just want to tell you that if it wasn't for your father, I wouldn't have had the life that I have now. 
And they all said the same thing. He said, he said because he was the only person on the planet who could make accountancy funny. He just made accountancy entertaining. I mean, it sounds like an almost impossible brief, doesn't it? But he managed it. And he used to make jokes. And he used to write books about accountancy with jokes in them. Um, and because he made it less, because accountancy, I think, is not known to be the most fascinating of occupations, um, but he made it entertaining. Um, and, you know, that was his that was his great strength. And that's and that's been his legacy. And, you know, he, it was great for me. But, you know, there are thousands of people that he taught um, who, you know, who wouldn't have got through their final exams, but for that. So, yeah, they own that as well. I wondered if he was um, quite a button-down character who happened to have this rogue streak in him no, for class, but actually it sounds totally, like he was... Totally flamboyant. Um, utterly flamboyant. Um, a, a bon viveur, a larger-than-life character. Um, nuts, in many regards. Um, nutty enough to, go, to choose to do a candidacy so he could drive cars. <laughs> and did he race at all? Okay, so you mentioned Interesting. the Amelia, but did he do circuit racing? Or? <laughs> he did one race in his life. He kind of thought, I'd better go and try it. And he did, I've got a photograph of him actually. He did it in some pre-war Aston Martin uh, at Silverstone, a club race at Silverstone. And he's, he's there and he's got, he's got a black helmet on, which doesn't have a visor. And he's wearing a big jumper and this huge steering wheel. And he's often, and, and he, he won actually, hang on, I might have it somewhere. I'll probably up, well, I'll, I'll find it in a minute. I'm, in fact, yeah, over there, there's a tiny little trophy. In fact, I'm going to get it. Hang on. <laughs> okay, Andrew's gone off to look for this tiny little trophy. He's got a whole stack of shells behind where he sits. He's just This sat probably down. isn't going to work unless you watch these on YouTube. But here you are. This is it. This is the trophy he won that day, which is an Aston Martin radiator. Um, and the little plaque, which used to be there with his name on it, is gone. Um, but yes, and he did one race and uh, he won a little trophy. He, so he, he clearly came somewhere. And at the end of it, he decided that racing, what, how did he put it? Um, taxed both himself and his machinery further than either of them cared to go. So he was never going to do it again. So he didn't. He did one race. But, um, so he did one race, came away with a pot and called it yeah, a day. 100% yeah, pot collection record. That's not bad. There aren't many racing drivers <laughs> who can say that. No. Well, do you know what? I bet he had the time of his life messing about with cars with his three car mad sons. He did. Given that he loved them that much. That's... He absolutely did. Yeah, I mean, when, when, we started racing, when we started racing, he did get terrified, though. I mean, I can remember when my oldest brother, my old brother, Jonathan, um, used to race, you know, alphas, alpha sids in club racing uh, and did quite well, um, you know, winning his class in the championships and that sort of thing. But I can remember my father came to see him race at Brown's Hatch one day. And he'd had an almighty accident just before my father turned up. Um, and me having to go to the gate to intercept him, uh, <laughs> lest he see, see the record. The record. So just meeting him, go, oh, hi, how are you? How are you? Uh, don't worry. He's had a bit of an off, but he's fine. And, and my, he, my father was a complete nervous wreck around, around us when we were doing that. But um, yeah, no, he, he was a oh. remarkable bloke. Uh well, that is a brilliant place to start, and I fear I'm going to let us down now. So, yeah, mine goes well back to childhood, um, probably even before adolescence when I was a kid. Um, I loved cars, as we all did back then. Um, but I, I've, I've written about this before on the Intercool, actually, the Drive Nation back then. Um, I am a first-generation petrol head, so I'm the total opposite of you. I didn't have any kind oh, so of... So you're my father? Yeah. He was well, the there first we go. Pe- yeah. 
so I, I didn't have any kind of car upbringing. You know, I didn't have anyone in my family really who enjoyed cars and who could help me indulge my passion for cars or even, you know, no one in my family owned interesting stuff that we could go out in and have fun with. And so, you know, as you, as you do when you're a kid, you sort of search around, don't you, for, for some figure to, to latch onto and to, so that you can express your enthusiasm for whatever it is. And can you imagine, right, I, I was obsessed with cars. I'm 12, 13 um so, so can, I, can I just tell me can, were you were you obsessed with cars from your very earliest memory when you were what's i don't know how old you were when you first had memories but when you like maybe you were four or something were you obsessed with cars then uh i was and what i i was one of those kids who could recognize cars very quickly you know count them off i, I could tell even when i was tiny tell everyone what they were um i always remember um in primary school when i was probably eight i would always just ask the other kids what kind of car does your mum have well, what kind of car does your dad have? And they'd say, a red one. And I'd say, no, 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 not what colour? <laughs> I want to know what kind of car it is. And they'd say, Nissan Micra. And I'd go, oh, good. Is that, is that the, the current one or is that the previous shit one? You know, I just, I just knew. I don't even know where that came from because it's not like I was reading car magazines. But Did, did you have somehow, a mate whose dad had a cool car or anything like that? No. Did you ever go in? Nothing cool at all. Stuff? No. Do you know what? It's the weirdest thing. And I've, I've written about this again before. I... I harassed and bullied my father into um i wanted he wasn't interested in cars and i was desperate for him to develop an interest and you know he he was is very sweet very loving and he he did his best and so one day he decided that we'd he took me to a motor show and it was when the mazda rx8 was new and it was on a turntable and he said oh i quite like that and i thought oh my goodness this isn't going to happen is it and he was sort of interested for a while and I harassed him into going for a test drive, and he took me once. Um, and I remember this so vividly. So I was probably 16 at the time, so I wasn't a, a really small kid at that point. Um, and we were in the car to begin with, with the salesman driving. And he took us over the road, across a roundabout, put his foot down. And I just remember being forced into the back of the seat that I was in with this, this G-force that I'd never experienced before. Um, and the, what's, what, what's interesting about that now is that five or six years later, I drove an RX-8 um, and they, they don't feel fast at all. They don't serve up any kind of G-force under acceleration No, they've like got that. no torque. Exactly. But the thing is, I'd never, ever felt any car accelerate with any kind of enthusiasm at all. So even just the, the force that an RX-8 can muster, that was totally alien to me. So it just demonstrates that even well into adolescence, I'd never sat in anything quick. Um, and so, yeah, I was, I found being too young to drive enormously frustrating because I love cars and I had no way of getting behind the wheel of anything. So, so how old were you when you drove a car for the first time? Um, I think I sat on my dad's lap and steered around a car park when I was no, no, 13, probably younger, I don't know, 10 or something. But I didn't drive a car until I was 16, until soon before my 17th birthday. Um, so I had a very, very slow car upbringing. I didn't really have any role models around me. Um, never, I wasn't ever around interesting cars. Did you ever go to a local cart track and have a whiz around in those or anything? I did. I went to Landau, so I was 16, and my dad took me for a few... Um, a few week weekends of proper clubman racing you know i got my license and i, I did a oh, few wow. weekends and i loved it but 
my dad didn't know the first thing about it. He was paying for it. Um, and I think it was a bit too much to ask for it to become something that we did every other weekend, for it to become a proper hobby of mine. Uh, so I was very lucky just to get to do a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, and, you know, they would take me to car shows now and again at the NEC or in London. Um, and so that, that was how I enjoyed being a petrol head, you know. And, God, it all just comes back now. And, of course, when, when you're a teenager, the most sort of titillating aspect of car culture is, particularly back then, is the max power stuff, tuning cars and, um, you know, the, the sort of... Uh, I don't know, the more childish aspects of it, I suppose. But to go back even further, I think it's inevitable that as a kid around the late 90s, early 2000s, um, when Top Gear was on TV, it was inevitable that one of my heroes was Jeremy Clarkson. Um, and he was my first automotive hero. Um, and actually, thinking about it now, most of my heroes are either in motorsport or more so in car media. Um, sincerely. And Clarkson was the original one. Um, and, you know, I loved cars as a kid and he made enjoying cars fun. You know, when you're a teenager and he's saying silly things and acting the buffoon and being childlike around cars, the best cars in the world, having fun with them um, and communicating about them in a way that was entertaining, hilarious, very enjoyable, not earnest in any way. Um, I, just, I just adored it. And Top Gear, even you, before... Sorry, can you also think that the remarkable skill that he exhibited and still does was to be able to do all that was to present cars in such a fun geeky silly way and yet at the same time command total authority over a subject you never thought he was just presenting you never thought that he was a bloke who didn't know anything about cars you absolutely knew that he was a car a car man to his boots and so and i think that's the thing that top gear presenters who haven't been crazy about cars that's the way they always get found out because you know they might be very funny they might have great they might be very telegenic they may have great you know on-screen presence but if you don't know your subject if you're not and that doesn't come across then you know the connection is not there is it that's a very good point because i think what he did cleverly was recognized particularly with the new top gear which is not new at all anymore is it's 20 years old or something yeah um but you know the, the studio-based top gear um I think he recognised that most people have a degree of interest in cars because most of us have to drive. Most of us take an interest and pay attention when we have to buy a car. So it's on our radars, isn't it? Driving cars, it's, it's, on, it's on the radar for most of us. However, most people are not obsessed with cars the way that we are. So he recognised that if you could, <laughs> if you could harness the, the sort of more relatable aspects of automotive and produce a show that was entertaining for the masses... Um, while still keeping people like us amused and entertained, that you could build an enormous audience. And that's what he did cleverly. However, that would never have been possible if he didn't genuinely love cars because it wouldn't have been authentic. He wouldn't have had credibility for us or for the more mainstream audience. So yeah. that's what he did cleverly. Very good. I remember going to, it was called MPH03. So in 2003, MPH was the live show that they did. Um, and it wasn't the trio, actually. It wasn't... Jeremy, James and Richard, I don't think. I think Tiff was there, maybe in James's place or in Richard's place. I can't remember. But this was in London, I think. Um, and there was a, you know, a car show on the side and then you go through to the live arena and they do an hour and a half on stage or whatever it was. Um, 
And I remember I had a video camera in my hands um, at the start of the stay, at the start of the show, when Clarkson walked through the curtain, and the ca- I don't have the footage anymore, but my, the camera's shaking in my hand. My hand is shaking because I'm so nervous and so weirdly excited about seeing Jeremy Clarkson. Um, I, I, even now I remember it, just quivering, just could not believe that he was right there. Um, and I, you know, particularly a little bit later on, I loved his writing um, about cars and about other stuff as well. I even liked his non-car stuff on TV, that, that talk show that he did, Clarkson. He, he became a total idol to me. Um, he got me interested in car media in a big way and he's ultimately the reason that I decided to do what I ended up doing. And the, that, that studio era Top Gear, particularly through the early years, left such, such an impression on me. It's, it's responsible for so much of why I love cars and why I got into the, the line of work that I did. It's very interesting because, I mean, okay, so my next nominees, so seeing as we're talking about car media, um, and I'm not going to talk too long about this because I've, to- I've spoken a bit about these guys on the podcast before and also uh, one of them is one of our contributors. Um, <laughs> but so I'm talking about uh, Mel Nichols and Steve Cropley, who 99% of people who listen to this will know are the people who edited Car Magazine. Well, Mel from the mid-70s through to the early 80s and then Cropley um, through most of the 1980s. Um, and what they did is actually... They may be horrified to hear me say this, I'm not sure. But what they did was a very similar thing with print media to what Clarkson went and did on Top Gear insofar as they were totally passionate about their subject, very knowledgeable. But they were also totally unafraid about who they offended. They were irreverent, they called it as they said, and they were, as a result, they were just the most massive entertainers. Um, and if you see it in the context of what they're up against at the time, uh, you know, Autocar and Motor Magazines in the, you know, in the 70s and early 80s were very, very, very dry publications. Um, even things like Motorsport, which were obviously for the enthusiast, you go and read those things now. I mean, they're interesting, all the information's in there, but they're hardly, a, you know, a riot. And these guys came along and they, they, they just broke all the rules. Um, they did stuff and they said stuff and there was none of this sort of deferential cap doffing to the manufacturers. They, um, they just didn't care. And they created a form of motoring. I mean, they, they, they changed the face of motoring journalism. And some of the greatest stories of any kind I have ever read um, were written by those guys uh, in Car Magazine. And because the coincidence was that, you know, I was of that age, I was at that most impressionable age, I was a, you know, I was kind of like a bomb waiting to go off. Um, when these guys came along, and I must have been, I don't know, 10 or 11 when Nichols started doing Car Magazine, maybe even younger. But at my most, um, what's the word? Uh, I was like a sponge. I was ready to soak all this stuff up. and And they were there and they were ready. And they... You know, the day of the month that Car Magazine came out was always the best day of the month. I would run to the newsagent. Um, I would always allow myself only what read one story before I got home. Uh, if for any reason it wasn't there, that was the end of the day. I mean, I was I was that bad about it. Um, and there was this time, and, I, and again, I'll be quick about this because I, I've told this story before, but when I was sitting in a hamburger bar with my father in Holland Park and Cropley, 
walked in to collect his takeaway. And I knew it was him because he got out of his red 308, which he parked outside. And literally, not my, my father said, you must go and talk to him. You must go and tell him how important, you know, because my father to him, that would just be what he did because he was that kind of guy. And I was this very shy, introverted, reserved you know, kid. And, and honestly, you know, he, he literally might have asked me to go and, you know, say boo to the Queen. I would never, ever have done it. Um, and yeah, and now I know these guys. Uh, they're my friends, uh, Nichols, um, works for us i'd love cropley to do stuff for us but he's tied up with autocar but um yeah they 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 were the main external influences on my life um when i was a kid and and genuinely without them actually they 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 probably stopped me being a motoring journalist for a bit because i was so in awe of them i thought there's no way i could ever do that um but then when i did become one um yeah i mean you know i I, i've tried and struggled and failed to follow their example ever since so yeah thanks guys Oh, it's so relatable. I just feel exactly the same way. So I think after Clarkson really got me interested in car media, um, I sort of continue on down that journey. I remember reading Top Gear, um, and then I'm, I think someone bought me a, a subscription to Auto Car for Christmas or my birthday, and so I, I, got, I had that for a couple of years. And same thing, every Wednesday or Tuesday, maybe even at, at, for a certain period. It was, um, it was it would, Tuesday. It would flop through the letterbox, and it was always the highlight, and I'd tear it open. And the guys in there became my heroes. And I'm not going to mention any of them because I'd have to mention you and that would just be embarrassing <laughs> for everyone. Do but then, <laughs> but then and a bit later on, I found Evo as well. Um, and when that grey plastic envelope came through the letterbox, it was an amazing thing. And you tear it open and flick through the whole thing back to front. And, and then the likes of Barker and Mead and Bovingdon and, you know, all those guys, again, genuinely became heroes to me and made me yeah really pursue this line of work um and so as i said a lot of my heroes were in car media and the others are in motorsport um and i'll offer you my next one uh and that's sebastian loeb um so when i was at school um he's still my best mate he he was a grass track driver and later a rally cross driver until at 17 he became a rally driver so he was embedded in that rallying world and he he loved it and he followed it closely um and it was him who really got me interested in rallying um and you know we together once we had our licenses we used to go to wales rally gb getting up at 3 a.m um following it through the rest of the season you know from a distance and it was i loved it and i was just so totally besotted with this form this this discipline um of motorsport it was brilliant and I I feel a bit sad that I missed the McRae Burns era. I just arrived a little bit too late to really capture that, to to be a part of that era. Um, you know, sort of late nineties through to the early two thousands. I arrived just a little bit later, um, and I really started paying attention to it just as Loeb was asserting his dominance. So he won his first title in '04, um, and every other one up until well, he won nine years on the trot. So. It was around 2005, 2006 that I really got interested. And at that point, there weren't any British front runners competing for wins or for the championship. And so really, as a, you know, I, I realise now that a lot of my motorsport heroes, particularly in F1, are British. And it, I don't know why, but it's, it's almost jingoistic. But somehow, I, I guess it, it's natural for all of us to be drawn to competitors from our own country. But I, I somehow was drawn to this Frenchman driving a French car um, and I think it's because he just I could just recognise that he was so much better than everybody else. He just seemed to be faster than everyone, more consistent. 
he seemed unbeatable and he he changed the sport forever with this new driving style i mean he he probably wasn't the first to introduce a circuit um a circuit racing driving style to rallying but he made it work better than anyone else before him um and it was just extraordinary to watch someone operate at a much higher level than everybody else around him who had similar or comparable equipment um and i i used to write about rallying a lot uh so you know before um before i started in the industry with my first full-time job at the end of 07 i did some freelance writing about rallying and a couple of years later um i found myself doing a lot more rally stuff so i was really embedded in that world for a while and i had a website of my own and i one of the things i did was was keep track it was called mud snow and tar and i kept track of is it still uh, there no it's not still there you won't find a thing (laughs) Um, you won't find a thing sadly and one of the things I did was keep track not just of stage wins the number of stage wins each driver had throughout the season but a cumulative running total of the margin by which drivers would win stages so if 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 someone won three stages by 10 seconds each stage their cumulative title would be 30 30 seconds and at the end of each year Loeb was just minutes ahead of everybody else. He, his cumulative Probably total hours. would be, yeah, it would be well beyond everybody else. Um, just a huge, huge margin. That's and interesting because that, that that, that, that's actually it's, it's only when you extrapolate it over a season that you actually get a true sense. Yeah. Of, we should we should do that in Formula One. Um, yeah, and just see. It's a. It shows you not only who's winning stages or races, but by what margin. Yeah. It's an interesting thing to do. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, quite apart from the fact that he was clearly the best and he did extraordinary things in a rally car, uh, he, he also, he was cool in that Gallic way and didn't seem to try too hard or give too much of a shit. And I just, I just thought he was brilliant. Definitely a motorsport hero to me. Okay. Um, my next one is a bloke that some people listening to this, um, particularly if they went to, or if they go to Goodwood, or used to go to Goodwood, the Revival and things like that a lot, uh, but he won't be a name that's known to most, is a bloke called Michael Salmon. Uh, he was known professionally as Mike Salmon. Um, and he was a racing driver, and he raced at Le Mans over a very long period of time. I think he did his first in about 60 two sixty three and I know he did his last in eighty four. So he raced at Le Mans seventeen or eighteen times over uh, a period of more than twenty years. However, as far as I was concerned, what was best about him was he lived about two miles away from us. Uh, we lived in Jersey and he was the only professional racing driver who lived on the island. And so of course my father went and made friends with him immediately. Um, and they were they were seriously good buddies. I mean, you know, probably the best friend that um, each of them had on that island and Michael ran uh, there was a Ferrari dealership still is I think uh, on Jersey um, and he sold Ferraris Alfa Romeos and Daihatsus would you believe um, <laughs> and of course. to me as a kid I was just completely starstruck by this bloke because he was a bloke a racing driver I mean he raced Ferraris at Le Mans and he raced Ford GT40s at Le Mans and then he raced Aston Martin Nimrods at Le Mans and to think that, that you know, he, he used to come around and, you know, and, 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 and have, you know, come around for dinner or whatever. He also he used to play table tennis with my father a lot. And just to sort of stand there watching these two middle-aged men, you know, playing table tennis and think, actually, that bloke's done Lamore 20 times. And that, that, that just like completely blew my brains. Um, and he was 
publicly, he was unbelievably political. I mean, embarrassingly politically incorrect at times, certainly sort of later on when the world sort of started to change and he was still capable of saying things which really you shouldn't say. But personally and privately, he was such a kind man. He and his wife, Jean, who was also an amazing racing driver, they never had children. Um, and so we were really really close to them and because I was so obsessed with cars um, I used to just I used to go and go and get on my bicycle and cycle across to the Ferrari dealership which was only about two three miles away from us and I'd just go and sit in his office with him and just talk about cars because he didn't have anyone he could do that with okay I had my brothers and my father but you know I did that with them all the time and I just go and sit in this bloke's office who you know with pictures of his you know various insane things he'd raced at Le Mans and he'd just tell me about you know, trying to take the kink flat at 210 miles an hour in the wet in a GT40. And, and I'd just be sitting, and I'd just be, uh. And he, he was also, he was an unbelievably brave man. He got very badly burnt at Le Mans in 1967 or 68. Basically, um, a mechanic had forgot to, or didn't put the fuel cap back on the car properly. Um, and he's going down the Mallsound straight at whatever a GT40 will do down there, plenty. 200 and something and the whole thing goes up and he's sitting in the car and he thinks well I've got to get out but I've got to get it stopped first and you know and those cars back then it's not like they had you know the modern brakes they took a long time they took a lot of stopping and he's sitting in it while this is going on um and he gets out um and you know he bought the scars for the rest of his life um didn't stop him going back um and you know he was i think he might through his injury i think he may have missed the year after that but as soon as he could be he was back and he i can remember him saying to me when they first started talking about putting chicanes on the straight he said if that happens i will never race there again he was so old school he was so old school um and he was a delightful man and he raced into his i mean he was racing at the revival um you know, well into the 2000s, um, really competitively, really quick when he was, you know, nearer 80 than 70. Um, and we always used to meet up and um, he was a wonderful, wonderful man. And I miss him very much. And, and what a what a privilege just to be able to grow up with someone like that. I can remember once he came over for dinner um, and probably lots of table tennis as well. And it was in the middle of the winter and unbeknownst to us while this was all going on um and this was a very rare event in jersey um snow fell a lot of snow fell um and he probably had quite a lot to drink and at the end of the dinner he sort of marched out to his car and you know suddenly trodden the snow drift and we said oh well you're not going home you better you better stay the night nonsense 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 um and off he went in his alpha sud which he had at the time um and um i can remember going out the following morning and there was only one track through the snow and there was his and just watching you could just see through his tire tracks the lines he was taking and the way he was obviously just sort of maintaining it and he basically drove like a rally driver all the way home and of course completely fine um <laughs> bloody yeah. hell and the, the other thing did, i'll shut up about him in a minute the other thing he did every time he came over after i got a driving license he'd always turn up in something different and while he was off playing table tennis he just tossed me the keys to this and it would start with little daihatsus um the last time he did it because by this stage i was probably in my 30s it was an lm002 <laughs> oh my god <laughs> because people the ferrari dealership people would just turn up in weird shit to part exchange yeah. it and somebody uh, turned course. up on an lm002 part exchange it for a testa or whatever i don't know um and so he just turned up in that and said off you go 
So wow. I went Harry Ryan the Ramble Ramble and Ramble. Double, double O2. So there you go. <laughs> Michael Sutton. Did he have any so, results? Did he have any results at Le Mans? Uh, the best he did, he came fifth overall, sharing a 330 LMB Ferrari for Marinelli Concessionaires, sharing with Jack Sears in 1963. He also came as a great documentary called Nimrod the Mighty Warrior about Aston Martin returning to Le Mans in the early 80s with the, with the Aston Martin Nimrod, which wasn't a works car, but it was works backed. And he shared that um, with Ray Malik and with Simon Phillips. I think Tiff was in the other car, actually. There were two cars. I think Tiff was in the other one. Anyway, the one Tiff was in, I think, I think Tiff had a puncture and it crashed. Um, but the one that Michael's... And don't forget that this was, you know, this was 1982. So this was the first year of Group C... Um, and so it was like 956, 956, 956. And they, I think they were first car home behind the Porsches um, in a car that uh, had a road car, Aston Martin V8 in it. Um, and it was basically, it was based on a Lola T70 with an Aston Martin engine in the back of it. Um, uh, but it was, it was the first British Group C car, you know, long before Jaguar started doing it. Um, and yeah, I think they came, I'm pretty sure they came seventh, um, which was a pretty good result. Yeah, good peddler, good peddler. Yeah, what, what a bloke. Uh, yeah. Okay, all right, well, let's keep it motorsport. Yeah, um, go on. Did the, is this guy a hero of mine? I need to think carefully about this. I think he, I think he was poised to become my hero, um, but at the right time, he didn't have the success that I hoped he would have. Um, <laughs> this is Jensen Button. Oh, um, there you go. And, no, absolutely. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, so, okay, so... I know I said that about Loeb, even though he was dominating, and often dominance is off-putting, uh, but I didn't find that off-putting with Loeb. However, you know, when I was a teenager and Schumacher was dominating Formula One, and it seemed like nobody could get close, it just it wasn't that enticing a sport to me at that time. Um, and I didn't, I I wasn't watching it before the start of the Schumacher era, so I was sort of flitting in and out of F1 at that time. Um, but then Jensen came along and in uh, around 04, he was having a good season, um, lots of podiums. Um, and he seemed, I liked that he was British and he seemed funny and personable. Yeah. Um, you know, he wasn't the corporate racing robot that a lot of the, those guys are and were. Um, I, it, it just seemed like a fun character. And then Hungary happened, 2006. Um, when he won a, a Grand Prix for the first time. And it meant so much to me. I remember leaping about, just delighted. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that shot of him with his helmet on after the race, out of the car with his eyes wide, just, you know, the whites of his eyes just popping. Um, that was my profile picture on MSN Messenger or something for a while. Um, and so I was, I was ready for this guy to become my hero. And I knew that he was from nearby he's from somerset isn't he i'm from bristol um and so i was just ready for him to become my hero and i hoped that after 2006 he'd win more races he'd maybe compete for the championship um but then honda happened in 2007 and 2008 and you know my earth dream and he was suddenly at the back of the grid again um and that was a shame. However, of course, what happened in 2007 was that a British, another British driver turned up, and I will come back to him later on. Um, I just want to keep talking about Jensen for a little bit. And and so Button didn't quite become that idol figure to me um, at that time. And then a couple of years later, 2009 happened. I was just so delighted to watch that unbelievable brawn year unfold. 
and see him win the championship. And ever since then, you know, he's he's been someone who I've looked up to, respected enormously, followed his career, just enjoyed watching him on TV if he's a pundit or if he's being interviewed or whatever. Um, and whether or not he's a hero to me, I think that means that's a big word, hero, isn't it? Um, and, but, and, and often overused, yeah. Yeah, and but I remember a few months ago when I spoke to him for TI online, I did a podcast with him about his Radford stuff. Um, and it was, it was a really significant moment for me to get to sit here talking via Zoom or whatever it was to Jensen yeah. Button. Yeah. That was a really cool moment for me. Um, yeah. I mean, to me, yeah. I, I think he does qualify because actually... You know, given that he can do it in a car, given that he's a Formula One world champion, he kind of proved himself. Uh, to me, the actually more important thing is, given that he can do that, is is the person that he is. Um, and I can remember the the fortitude and stoicism with which he bore all the all the that those two nightmare seasons with Honda. Um, and I can remember. And I've told this story before, so again, I'll be brief, but going to the Festival of Speed and, and I had to ask various people what the most impressive thing they'd seen all weekend was. Um, and I can remember going up to Sterling, who I'm not going to mention because I think everybody knows he's my hero. Um, but just going up to Sterling and say, what's the most impressive thing you saw uh, at the festival this weekend? And he said, well, it was Jensen, wasn't it? And I went, what, did he, he drove up the hill really fast? And he went, no, no, it's got nothing to do with driving at all. And apparently they'd all gone up to the top of the hill and you've done it. So you know what happens. You get into this massive great assembly at the top of the hill and all the drivers get out of the car and start talking to each other. Jensen gets out of whatever he's in and instead of talking to the drivers, just goes across to the fans. And there's a whole wall of fans behind that assembly area. And he spent all the time they were up there just talking to the fans and signing autographs and nobody else. And Sterling was up there and just saw this and just thought, actually, that's the real mark of a proper person not just a great racing driver but a proper person so yeah absolutely i i i, I completely understand why uh, he's up there for you yeah and I, I love that after his f1 career he's dabbled in all sorts of other things um other forms of motorsport i mean um super gt in japan and le mans and gt driving and some off-road stuff as well so yeah he yeah. loves it he does love it he's one of us he loves road cars as well yeah he's up there right let's yeah. have your next one Okay, uh, another racing driver who sadly I never met because he got killed, um, Gilles Villeneuve, um, Jacques' dad, um, as we know. And to me, there was a purity and a passion about the way he went racing, which it was quite Sterling-like, um, but he... On top of all of that, he had this wonderfully sort of unhinged quality. Um, you know, so he was racing. So he was racing sort of in... His, his career started in 77 when he did some races for McLaren, didn't retain the contract. Uh, and then he did five seasons with Ferrari from 78 to 82, when I would have been between the ages of sort of 12 and... Well, I think I would have been 16 when he got killed. Um, and... To me, he was just, because he was so fast, I mean, just so, I mean, in terms of raw talent, there was, I, I don't want to say he's the greatest that there ever was, although plenty will, because I just, I've never believed you can compare across eras, but there was nobody out there at that time who had more raw talent than Gilles Villeneuve. I, I, I have no doubt about that at all. And yet, he was such an honourable driver, 
um, in 19, when was it, 79, when they had the 3-1-2-T4 and Jodie Schechter um, was leading the championship. And Villeneuve, who probably could have overtaken him and won races, he just didn't. He just sat there. He played the dutiful number two, you know, showing that, um, you know, you can be a superstar and a team player at the same time. Um, he was an intensely honourable man. Um, I don't think... I mean, he did, he did crazy stuff on the track. Um, I'm sure people will remember, uh, that, and if not, there's that footage of him at Zandvoort when you know he has a puncture and he's trying to get the car back to the pits and he drives it back so far, he basically hasn't got a car left by the time he gets back to the pits. Um, and there was obviously Dijon in 1979, the wheel banging with René Arnoux, which is probably the greatest bit of... Um, wheel-to-wheel motor racing I've ever seen in Formula One. It's all on YouTube. If you've not seen it, I'm sure you have. Um, and yet he wasn't a lunatic. He, he cared very much about safety. He, you know, he was prepared to risk his life, but he wasn't prepared to give it away. Um, he wasn't one of these... You know, he didn't have a death wish or anything like that. He campaigned for circuit safety. But when he was in the car, he did what he had to do. And he was such a skillful driver as well. There was Harama in 1981 when he was in the, the first turbo Ferrari, the 126C, which was a pig of a car. It, it, it didn't handle at all. It had no grip. It had, a, it had a powerful engine with hideous lag. And he kept you know, five or six of the world's greatest drivers behind them, all in massively faster cars for the duration of the race. They just couldn't get past. And it's, you know, it, and, and it, it's one of the greatest feats of driving and he didn't overtake anyone he just stopped himself being overtaken and nobody could say that he ever you know blocked them unfairly or tried to you know chop them up or carbon he just drove beautifully and and i can remember when he got killed at zolder in 82 this was after um the san marino grand prix when his teammate didier peroni had gone against um an agreement they had um, that if the race was secure, whoever was first would stay first and whoever was second would stay second. They were leading one, two. And then on the last lap, Peroni overtook him and nicked the race. And Villeneuve said there and then, I will never talk to him again because that was just not the way that you behaved. Um, and then in qualifying for the next race, some say because he was trying to out-qualify Peroni, um, others not, but nevertheless, um, he came across Jochen Mass, um, Jochen was completely blameless in the accident that followed. Um, Villeneuve died. I was heartbroken. I was absolutely heartbroken. Um, because, I mean, he was, other than Sterling, and in fact, Sterling was more of a hero of mine in later life when I got to know the bloke. Um, you know, back then, Villeneuve was my hero. And he was gone. And I just, I just I, you know, and I can remember being at wherever I was at school some boys being a bit unkind and saying god you never met but what are you so upset about and just thinking you guys you will never understand and feeling sorry for them that they could never feel that passionate about um you know something like that and um yeah and I often wonder what he would have gone on to achieve um but you know back then it was uh it wasn't a safe thing to be doing mm. so there you go wow what a brilliant candidate I, 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 and, and also I then met his son Jacques Years later, who I didn't mm. get on with, and I, he was just, he was just a really difficult, arrogant. I met him with James with James Garner, you know Jim Rockford at Monza, um, and whereas Garner was just charming and lovely and wonderful, 
Jacques Villeneuve just didn't want to be there. He wasn't interested in any of us. He was rude. He was dismissive. Um, he was a, he was a pain in the ass, frankly. Um, and mm, yeah. Anyway, that is um, disappointing, isn't it? A little bit. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, how much more time have we got? Well, not much more. We'll rattle through these last these last few. So. It is inevitable that we sort of default to racing drivers with this sort of discussion because a lot of what they do is fundamentally heroic to us, isn't it? Um, but because my last one, and this is my last one, is a racing driver and actually an active racing driver, I'm not going to dwell on Lewis Hamilton too long. But sincerely, I would. there is nobody in the world, um, maybe apart from Jeremy Clarkson, who I'd be more starstruck by to meet than Lewis Hamilton. Um, and this this feels odd because you know he's very much an active F1 driver. Um, but the the truth of it is, he when he emerged into on the scene in F1, I mean in 2007, that was when I was 20 years old. You know, I was disappointed that Button hadn't become my idol in motor racing, and I was just waiting for someone, someone come along. Lewis is only a couple of years older than me, but. He really is a hero um, with no qualification to me, you know. Um, and when he burst onto the scene in 2007 and he, he set that incredible record of nine straight podiums from his debut with two wins in there, um, it was just <laughs> an extraordinary bad, thing. An unbelievable thing to see unfold. Um, and I remember being completely gutted when he slipped into the gravel trap on the pit enter in China. Um, and then a couple of weeks later in Brazil when he didn't manage to win the championship, sincerely gutted. Um, And then on the flip side, you know, the following year, I particularly remember Silverstone 08 in the wet when he was just head and shoulders above the the field, just a class of one. Unbelievable how he, he, well, basically he was the only one who kept higher temperature in the wet in those torrential conditions, and he just disappeared um and i loved his driving style how he went about racing how aggressive he was how he could drive in the wet how he could overtake how fast he was over a lap is um and then of course brazil 2008 is that glock last corner honestly i just get just get chills when i think about that because but how sorry for felipe did you feel well, not at all, because I was a Hamilton fan, you know, <laughs> harsh, but speaking truthfully. I was both. I was, but, uh, yeah, but, I'd, you know, I'd never watched someone that I really, um, really supported and really idolised win a championship before. Um, and so watching Lewis win in 08 was, I will, there will probably never be a more significant championship win to me unless one of my kids goes on and wins, wow. you know, that's some and sort of championship. And it's the fact that in later life he has used the immense power um and influence that he has come to command that he has um used that to pursue the causes that are important to him does that is that is that relevant to you and the fact that he's here the the fact that he's trying to be a force of good in the world beyond formula one does that does that make a difference to you or is it was you always that already that bigger hero before any of that um, it does make a difference. And actually what I've loved over the last 15 years or whatever it is, is watching his development in every aspect. So, you know, he was this phenomenally quick, young racing driver, this hot shoe when he, when he appeared. And he, he won all those races early on, won the championship in his second season. But then he went through his sort of lean spell, didn't he? And he was making mistakes and crashing into Massa every other race. Um, and he, 
he was temp- tempestuous then. Um, and, and, but also in his very early McLaren years, he was a very corporate animal at that point. He was very buttoned down. Um, and so over the years, we've watched him cut out the mistakes. There was a phase where he made fewer mistakes than anybody else, far mm. fewer. Yeah. Um, I, th- I feel like we're seeing a couple more now. But, uh, and I agree. He, but then he's he, under pressure now that he's never, he hasn't been under for a while. He's under, he's under pressure now, which is probably what makes a difference. And of course, we've watched him have this enormous success um, beyond anybody else before him. Um, and you're quite right. We've watched him turn into a role model. Um, away from motor racing, but within motor racing as well. And we've, we've watched him develop into a man, haven't we, when he was a boy, when he emerged on the scene. Um, and so it's the whole thing. It's the whole thing. And I know that he's a divisive character and people don't like him for whatever reason. But to me, he, he is a hero. And as I said, it's, if I had to reduce it to just two people, it's him and Jeremy Clarkson. Blimey. I, I mean, it's a, I always used to blow hot and cold about Lewis. Um, when he first came, I thought, fantastic. It's just great because he was just so electrifying. And then exactly what you said, he went through that phase. And I actually thought that there was a, a petulance about him and an arrogance and a dismissiveness. And there was, there was a period when I, I really wasn't a fan. And then in recent years, um, probably actually, I think even more now, because it's very interesting to see how he's reacting under pressure. And if you if you look at um, at the race at the weekend in Mexico, he came second, and he was he was just so graceful about it, and um, and I can just you know he 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 just he's grown up and he's matured, and I think that he is now that he is you know a sort of senior figure within the sport i think he has adapted to that in a way that there was a time i never thought that he would um and and I, actually i admire him all the more for it because he's been on this journey um and, and and appears to have emerged a far finer more well-rounded um sportsman um than certainly i ever imagined that he would be mm, yeah that's true that's true um okay well we don't have too much longer, so do you want to? I, I'm sure you've got plenty left. Well, I do. I'll just I'll, I'll just do my last one, only because he's an anti-hero, <laughs> um, <laughs> and I thought we all we all need a good JR character in there. So um, Enzo Ferrari. Um, ah, brilliant! <laughs> there's a wonderful book. Um, what's it called? It's, I think it's just called Ferrari uh, by Brock Yates. It's 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 a biography of Ferrari. And it's it's a hatchet job, um, and it basically says that Enzo was an ass, and 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 I'm sure. Well, I know that there were that, that, that sometimes, well, many times, Enzo behaved in a way which was. I mean, he was totally Machiavellian. Uh, he did exploit drivers. He did set one against the other. He did behave incredibly badly at times. But I mean. What a man! What an achievement! What a legacy! I mean, Ferrari. It just says it all, doesn't yeah. it? I mean, it is yeah. it is the ultimate. Um, and if you look at what he created and the way he did it, and the Scuderia, because to Enzo, Enzo never had any interest in the, in his road cars at all. He thought that people who bought Ferraris to use on the road were 
rich and probably not that bright. But hey, they provided the money which enabled him to go racing. So that's absolutely fine. Um, and, I, and, and there's a bit of me that sneakily admires that kind of um, that kind of approach because it's so focused um, and the results speak for themselves. I mean, there's there's never been a racing car manufacturer like Ferrari. I'm sure there never will be. Um, so there are so many people who are fans of the sport around the world only because of Ferrari. Um, and and I, again, I've said this on the podcast before, I have this weird thing. You give me a Ferrari road car, I'll, I'll assess it like any other road car. Come race day, there's a bit of me that always just wants the Ferrari to win. Whoever's in it, I just want Ferrari to win because I, I just, I love Ferrari and I always have. Um, that's Ferrari, the racing team, um, because there is a purity about the way that it came into being. Um, and, you know, he did employ some great drivers, but it was Enzo who who was behind all that. The, the other thing I would say about Enzo Ferrari was when he was making racing cars in those eras when racing was at its most dangerous, um, and you can't really say this about almost any other racing car manufacturers around at the time, people didn't die in Ferraris, or if they did, it wasn't through Ferrari's braking. He never made his cars so flimsy they just fell apart because you knew that, you know, the lighter they were, the faster they'd go. He always, you know, there, there is, I don't think that there is an incident of a Ferrari driver drive, dying in a Ferrari because of mechanical failure, um, which is extraordinary, if you think. That's that, really important, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, and it is really important. So maybe he wasn't quite as cavalier as all that, I don't know. Um, but, yeah, rightly or wrongly, and, you know, he, he's somebody who has his advocates and he's somebody who has his detractors, but... He was he, he is a person who through my entire life, right up to and including today, I'm sure for the rest of my life, has absolutely fascinated me. Uh, I never met the bloke, um, never came close to having an opportunity. Um, but those I know who have met him um, you know, talk about this mercurial character behind the dark glasses with the blue pen in his office. In, in And to me, it's all just part of the myth, all part of the legend. Um, and... Yeah, he's absolutely a hero of mine. Whether he was a very nice person or not, that's another conversation. Yeah, I totally understand. I totally get it. And Ferrari's an interesting one because it's so easy to be put off by the theme parks and the aftershaves and the branded baseball caps and all that nonsense that goes with it. Um, it's very easy to be, to be cynical about Ferrari. And also because if any car, if any supercar is going to be bought for the wrong reasons, it's probably a Ferrari maybe a Lamborghini. Um, but, the, you know, so there is an image issue. But when you go to Marinello and you go to Fiorano and you look around and you think, that was Enzo's place. That's where he used to watch the Grand Prix on a little television. Yeah. It's all just so romantic. And I just, yeah. I get totally swept that, up in through it. Through that square archway and you go in there. Unbelievable. And in the sanctum. Um, yeah. That'll never feel normal to me. That will all, every time no. I do that, and we all try to be quite nonchalant, oh, here we are again, <laughs> back at Maranoa. And in fact, we're all just yeah. going, shit, it's Maranoa. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. and, 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 and it's right that it should be like that because, mm. you know, if you don't get fired up by that, you know, you, you, you're in absolutely the wrong line of work. Mm. Totally agree. Yeah, that's a brilliant candidate. Um, well, do you want to mention anyone else before we finish or should we wrap this one up? I think wrap it up. I was going to go on about Senna, um, but I think he's probably a podcast on his own. Um, so, no, so I, I think I think I'm done for now. Um, I mean, there's so many more. We we we, we come back and do you know lots of other podcasts on it, but I think that's a um, a reasonable number to be going on with. Good, I agree. Okay, let's wrap that one up. Um, 
thank you everybody for listening um we'll be back to talk to you again next week but make sure you go and rate and review the podcast please that does make a difference thank you thank you very much deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.